Considering what we've looked over the last couple of weeks, <clears throat> going back to 1 Kings 4, we looked at a snapshot of Solomon's glory, all of the descriptive terms and uh, ways that that tells us the glory of his kingdom. Before we get into this part, that we're, section we're in now, last week we looked at the agreement that he had with Hiram, Hiram of Tyre, and then all the workers that were involved, both from Israel and at, from uh, Tyre's, or Hiram of Tyre, all of his people. And now 1 Kings 6, we'll get into a couple of weeks here where we look at the temple building. We're actually now finally at the building of the temple. We've been talking about that for a few weeks. I want to begin at 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. That's one of our parallel, our parallel passage for the study tonight. 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1 tells us that the temple building began at what site? Mount Moriah. Now, where does that come up previously in our study in the Bible? Mount Moriah. Abraham, yes. This is a very significant passage. This, this passage will tell us where the temple is built. And I think certainly there's some significance there in that idea. Let's, let's look at 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, where they build the building the temple at Mount Moriah. Let's go back to Genesis 22. Abraham offered Isaac there, as we were told, on Mount Moriah. He was told where to go do that. He wasn't doing it where he wanted to do it. He was told exactly where that was to be done. And then as we come forward in our Bible study to 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, this place is mentioned once again. You will remember uh, previously in study we've talked about this being Arana's threshing floor, which is where David, uh, where God really stayed the pestilence that he had given upon the people. And this is the place where that stopped. So it's very significant. God was listening to David at this place. He was recognizing David's inquiry and God stopped the pestilence there in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Now, one more interesting fact, if you consider this greater area of Zion or this greater Mount area, we would also include the idea that Christ was crucified here in this area. In Luke 23, verse 33, the uh, place of Calvary or Golgotha, Christ was crucified in this area. I'm not going to say it in the exact same spot, but in the greater Mount area of Mount Zion, which is very significant. And you carry, uh, you can see parallels that we really don't have time to get into tonight in those three particular instances. Now let's go back to uh, well. Let me let's look at, while we're looking at that Calvary. Just wanted to. This is a picture of that area in New Testament times. You'll see the temple here is pointed out in New Testament times, and Calvary is over here at the top of your screen, and that's roughly about 2,000 feet away from the temple area. So you see how close that is to, to the temple, a couple, couple thousand feet. <clears throat> Just thought you might be interested in seeing that. 
Now, let's go back to 1 Kings. We'll begin, we'll look at our text here, beginning at 1 Kings chapter 6. Verse 1, it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. 480 years, we, we looked at the timeline, I think this was our first week that we did our study, but if you go up to the time of their exodus out of Egypt and consider that to be about 1450 B.C. or so. And you subtract 480 years, you're down to about 970 B.C., which is roughly people, different scholars use different years, and some vary, you know, two or three years or even as much as five years apart. But this takes us down to 970 B.C., Solomon's fourth year. I want you to think about something while we're at that point. This temple is going to be, that's going to be constructed is going to last them roughly 400 years, about 400 years. And which, in one way, I think about it's good that it was built the way it was so it would last that long. 400 years is quite a, quite a large, lengthy amount of time. But then again, you think about how much effort and work went into that. It's so sad that it ended in the way it did when the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. Now let's go back to our text here. Again, 1 Kings 6, verse, uh, verse 2. Pick up at verse 2. We're 480 years after the exodus of Egypt, and the temple now begins... Let me say this too. I, I did want to mention this. What, how can the people of God go 480 years without a temple? Is that possible? Obviously it is. They went that long without a temple. They had the tabernacle, didn't they? They had the tabernacle before this period of time. And certainly, as David had requested, he wanted to build the Lord a house. And he was not allowed to, but his son Solomon was. Now we pick up in verse 2. The house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was three score cubits, the breadth thereof 20 cubits, and the height thereof 30 cubits. You'll see these dimensions here set out for you. These, if we take a cubit to be about 18 inches or so, this puts the building, this would be the dimensions of the outer part of the, the main building, to be about 30 feet wide, 90 feet long, and 40 feet high, 45 feet high. That's the dimensions, if you can picture what that is. If you can imagine the, uh, the layout of a tennis court, the tennis court would be roughly, well, this, this temple area would be a little bit bigger than a tennis court, longer especially than a tennis, tennis court would be. To just give you a kind of a layout there. But it's 45 feet high. Now, what we're going to look at in just a moment is the, the, a picture of the temple. And we'll do that when we get through reading to about verse 6. But I want you to keep that, that area in mind. We're talking about 30 feet by 90 feet long. 45 feet high. 
Verse 3, the porch before the temple of the house was 20 cubits, the length was the length according to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. And for the house he made windows of fixed lattice work, and against the wall of the house he built stories round about, against the walls of the house round about, both of the temple and of the most holy place, and he made side chambers round about. So this is the last part of verse 5, this will be an addition to what... Uh, basic structure that we've seen before in the tabernacle, these side chambers that they would use as storage facilities. Verse 6, the uh, first story was five cubits broad, and the middle was six cubits broad. The third was seven cubits broad, for on the outside he made offsets in the wall of the house, round about that the beams should not have hold in the walls of the house. All right, now let's look at a... uh, kind of a layout here of what we've seen so far. The holy place, this inner part here is what we talked about is roughly the size of maybe a tennis court. I'm not, I'm just talking in broad general terms here. The holy place is 30 feet by 60. The holy, the most holy place is 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, 30 feet high. And you see these side chambers are round about that are added on. These will be used for storage and whatnot for the temple. Think about it uh, from this standpoint, there's a lot more people now re- demanding service and worship, and it requires a lot more work to be done than, than the, even the tabernacle could probably could work in. We will, as you look to the right part of the screen, the altar of sacrifice, this is the place where the burnt offerings and so forth were given. And then on the other side, perhaps, is where the molten sea, this is the place where the water was stored, a very large 15 feet in diameter. 15 feet in diameter is this pretty large uh, storage of water, isn't it? Now, consider as we look, uh, think about the building if you'll consider this structure here, this is an artist's rendering. We don't know what the temple looked like. Nobody does. There's no pictures. And this is just an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. And I don't want to suggest anything necessarily. I don't want to suggest too much by a picture as this. But I do want to present it as maybe somewhat of a help to understand the size of the building the materials that were used, where they were used, and uh, so forth. So as you come up to the temple itself, on your left-hand side, you would see the molten sea of water. On your right hand, you'd see the altar of sacrifice, where they would take the animal sacrifices. And by the way, we studied uh, recently about a living sacrifice, didn't we? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Where the living sacrifice would get its origin and understanding here at this altar of sacrifice that we're seeing here at the temple. And you would see next week we'll talk, I think next week we'll look at these uh, on the left-hand side. You'll see these shorter basins of water that were used, and uh, we'll talk about that next week. But as you come up to the temple, I want you just to picture two or three different things. First, understand that the outside, as you look at the outside, it's all of stone construction. Very exquisite and costly stones, 
that, that are made as you look at the outside of the structure. Then if you were, this is a cutaway, and if you look inside the building, as we're going to see as this is further described, you would look around, and if you were a priest, you would be seeing all gold, all around you, gold. And some the walls have ornate carvings in wood, and that's overlaid in gold. And then you would go into the most holy place. Again, that is covered in gold. But just picture here as the, as the entire structure, including the side chambers and the length, you would be getting pretty close to a basketball court, about the size of a basketball court, if that gives you a little idea of the size of the structure. And this, again, we said it's 45 feet high. Think about, as we're looking at that for just a moment, because I'm not going to go back to this picture, I want you to consider the inside of the holy place how this wood was being used because not, a, not any of the stone would be seen from inside. They layered all of the inside with wood and they put these intricate carvings of pomegranate and palm trees and flowers and then they overlaid that in, in gold. So all you see is, is completely gold inside the house. And again, this should impress upon us the value of such a place, it's not a common building by any means, is it? It's not a common structure. And I would venture to say that there never been and never has been a building quite like this ever built. Or you have so much put into a relatively small structure as we compare some large structures that man, men have made at times. Now let's continue in uh, our reading at verse 7. The house, when it was in building, was built of stone made ready at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. We talked a little bit last week about the great and costly stones that they had and, and all of this was to be done at the quarry and these stones were to be brought in and there was not to be a saw or a tool or a hammer in Jerusalem to be heard. And you think about prefab buildings, you know, we think we have Oh, we're so smart, we can do prefab buildings and you just put them right up on site. Well, this was long before we came along. And this was kind of that idea, prefab building. You just, the stones, huge stones, and we've seen already that some of those weighed many, many tons, brought in and made a foundation for the temple. And here, as they were commanded, no hammer, no axe, no tool of any kind. And then you're left with understanding that if you don't have a tool on site to modify, it becomes very, very difficult. 
If you were told you have to go to a job site and do some work, and you can't take any tools with you, you have to do it all off-site. It has to be brought on-site. There can be no adjustments made with hammer, tools, whatever. Now, that's quite, quite a venture, isn't it? Now, I want you to think, let's dig a little deeper and think for just a minute. <clears throat> Suppose you were in in ancient history, you were part of these people. And in that day and time, where would you go to learn the trade of making great and costly stones? Where would you go to learn that? If you were in Egypt, would that perhaps help? I think I heard somebody say, "Did I? what did I hear? I heard somebody say something. Maybe you said Egypt. But you'd probably send people to Egypt, wouldn't you? Egypt was known for building large monuments out of great and costly stones. And perhaps the Israelites learned some of that there and carried that with them throughout the generations. And by the way, uh, the Israelites had been taught, no doubt, how to use papyrus and record documents. And wasn't it so fitting that they knew that right about the time they were going to receive the Old Testament, the, the Law of Moses. And they could take that down and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. That papyrus that they used, that they had been taught how to use, be, use in Egypt and how to have scribes that record all this stuff. Isn't that interesting? Now, verse 8, the door for the middle side chambers was on the right side of the house. And these are, again, this is looking on the side of the house, the side chambers. And they went up by winding stairs into the middle story, out of the middle into the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he covered the house with beams and planks of cedar. And he built the stories against all the house, each five cubits high, and they rested on the house with timber of cedar. Now let's pause there for, for just a moment for any comments that you might have up to this point. Yes. Just think back to your question a moment ago about the skill and how did they develop it. Well, you go back to even the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle. God put that ability in men's hearts and minds mm -hmm. then for that stuff. And although there's you know, no, no record saying he did that here, but I think it could be very likely that, mm -hmm. that God gave them that ability to do so without them having to go somewhere else or something. And then those, those things that they learned during the building of the tabernacle mm -hmm. could have been passed down throughout generations as well, too, for part of that skill set. Very good. All right. Anything else? Okay. Verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which thou art building, if thou wilt walk in my statutes, execute mine ordinances, and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I establish my word with thee, which I spake unto David thy father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. And is there anything in verse 11 through 13 that would give Solomon a hint as to how to construct these stones and how to 
tie the wood into the stones. And anything about understanding how to carve the wood or, or uh, maybe how to overlay the gold. Is there anything in verses 11 through 13 about that? Why is this so important that we interrupt a, a narrative about the construction of the temple to say what's said in verse 11 through 13? God had already appeared to Solomon in chapter 3, I believe it was, 1 Kings 3. He's going to appear to him personally again in chapter 9 after the construction is finished. But here while it's going on, as verse 11 says, The word of the Lord came to Solomon, which I take that to be that it's perhaps an angel or perhaps a prophet. It doesn't seem to be as personal as the other appearances. But verse 11 says, The word of the Lord, which perhaps is a prophet, comes to Solomon and says, Concerning this house, there is one thing that is very important, and where would you put this in priority? Is it more important to know how the stones fit together, or is it more important to remember verse 11 through 13? Remember the law of God. No matter how beautiful and how elaborate the building is, God, each of those times, 1 Kings 3, 1 Kings 9, and then here in the middle in 1 Kings 6, is stressing to Solomon, remember my word. Remember my word. Walk in my statutes. Keep my commandments. So we see in addition, and we stated this previously, that this building, even though this is a monumental task, it's not entirely a physical endeavor, is it? It's not entirely a physical endeavor. It is a spiritual endeavor as well. And no matter how much we focus on the physical, we see that the spiritual is still still there. Sometimes we look back at the Old Testament and we say, "Well, that was a law, that was a law of the flesh and and uh, all of works and a physical law." In some degree, it was, but it was still a spiritual law that they had. Yes. Later in the book of Jeremiah, I believe it's maybe chapter four or so. Of course, that was right near the end of the nation there when Jeremiah prophesied. He said, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, they were saying, as long as the temple's here, God's with us. Mm-hmm. Well, he's letting them know at the very beginning, that's not what that means. You've got to keep my commandments if mm-hmm. I'm going to be with you. Mm-hmm. Very good. So some of them never did learn that lesson. Same meaning, isn't it? Okay. So it's not entirely a physical endeavor. This is a spiritual endeavor. And you know, we think about today, we do physical things as well as part of our commandments, part of our obedience. We do physical things as well. All right, let's continue in verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it, and he built the walls of the house within with boards of cedar, 
From the floor of the house and the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. There's the wood that we were talking about covering the inside of the building. And he covered the floor of the house with boards of fir, and he built 20 cubits on the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor and the walls of the ceiling. He built them for it within for a most holy place. Verse 17, and the house that is the temple before the uh, most holy place was 40 cubits long. And there was cedar on the house within carved with knops and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone seen. And he prepared a most holy place in the midst of the house within to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And within the most holy was a space of 20 cubits length, 20 cubits breadth, 20 cubits height. And he overlaid it with, with pure gold and he covered the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold and drew chains of gold across the oracle and he overlaid it with gold. This is a very expensive house, isn't it? Just consider for just a moment how much gold. We, we've talked last week about all the stones and the expense that's involved in that. And now we see within the house, the house of wood inside, and then that's intricate carvings of all these pomegranates and flowers and cherubim, and that's to be overlaid in gold. That's easy for us to read things of this nature, and we get a little sleepy. Uh, we get a, it's a little tedious reading for us, isn't it? To read things like this, and to go back to Exodus when Moses was told to build the tabernacle and all these things, make this this way, hook this together this way, and it's got to be made out of a certain thing. And that's quite tedious reading for us. But I firmly believe that we should read it. And we should understand that we don't take lightly the work of God, nor his commandments. Solomon could have gone in there and built it the way he wanted to. He could have taken a lot of shortcuts, but he was told how to build it. Now let's look at verse 22. The whole house he overlaid with gold until the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the most holy, he overlaid it with gold. Now if you would go to Second Chronicles chapter 3, our parallel passage, Second Chronicles 3 and verse 8 will tell us that particularly in the most holy place, how much gold was used in that part of the temple. How many? 600 talents of gold. I, I take that to be the walls and whatnot, because later we're going to see the cherubim, but regardless, 600 talents. If we use the measure that we used a few weeks ago in estimating what this would be, this would be about $1.2 billion worth of gold in our terms today. And that's just in the most holy place. 
And we see that it's an astounding figure uh, to think about that. Concerning the work of God and the work of the temple, did they cut any corners? Didn't cut any corners, did they? We made the analogy last week about when we, when we build a house and we get started and it's not too long before we start looking to, to cut corners here and there, save a little money here and there, don't we? We do that. Where can I save some money? If I don't do this, you don't see that with Solomon and the temple, do you? No expense spared, no cutting of corners, nothing... In fact, only the best, shall we say, for God. Only the best. All of the best that we have is given to God and His work in His kingdom. Now let's catch up on our outline here. Verse 11 through 13, as we saw, this is a unique command. Kind of sets, kind of sticks out, doesn't it, as separate from the rest of the reading, but very important, very vital. Verse 14 through 18, we saw the interior of the house made of cedar, fir, and all olive woods, very costly woods. The interior then would be overlaid with gold. And then, as we've seen, or as we will see here in verse 23 through 28, the most holy place is described here. Now, beginning at verse 23, in the most holy place, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the wing, one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. From the uttermost part were ten cubits. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubim were of one measure, of one form. And the height of one cherub was ten cubits, so that would be about fifteen feet high, if you can imagine going into that room, and that would be a, certainly an overwhelming figure to see over your head, wings touching from one side of the wall to the other, and this height of the cherubim itself was 15 feet. Now verse 27, he set the cherubim within the inner house, and the wings of the cherubim were stretched forth so that the wing of the one touched the wall, touched the one wall, the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. And their wings touched one another in the midst of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So we have, <clears throat> going into the most holy place now, as we would consider this to be the place that only the high priest would go in once a year. And what would he do in this most holy place one time in the year? Okay. And we call that day, day of atonement, the day of atonement. We go in and offer upon uh, the sacrifice for himself and the people and the, offer the blood there. So this is the room that we're talking about where these cherubim are. And by the way, in the center here, a centerpiece of the room is what? The ark. The ark has items in it. What are those items? We'll rehearse that while we're here. Ten Commandments. Ten commandments the manna. And Aaron's rod that budded. 
all have very significant things as well that they represent. So this is what's in this room here where the two large cherubim, which are creatures that uh, would be looking over the area. And there's an interesting place where these are found once again in Scripture. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, they were put, after the fall of man, these were put to guard the way back to what? The tree of life. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, and look at that for just a minute. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. <clears throat> verse 22, Jehovah God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Verse 24, so he says, let us, let's drive the man out and place at the east of the garden of Eden the cherubim and the flame of a sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And as we fast forward here to the days of Solomon where he's building the temple, think about the cherubim are those creatures that are, have one job and they're to attend to the presence of the throne and the throne of God. Go all the way back to Genesis 3 as we have, and man, Genesis 3 verse 24, from that point on, man is trying to get back in touch with the tree of life. And the entire Bible is telling us the story of how to do that. How do we get back to the tree of life and have everlasting life? And that story finds its conclusion in Revelation 22, where we're back in touch with that tree of life. But until then, God gives us pictures to understand, of the, to understand the separation that has occurred. You see, in Genesis 3, there's a great separation that has occurred there. And it's one that causes us to long and to yearn to be back in the presence of God. And until we do, God, along the way, gives us figures and types to show us that way. And at this point, where is the most vivid representation of where God is upon the earth? When Solomon builds the temple, where is it? It's in that most holy place where God's presence is, and that's where we are striving to be. But as we've seen here, 1 Kings 6 is, has cherubim there that are guarding and attending to the throne of God. All right, let's continue. Uh, well, any, any thoughts there through verse 28? That sword is still leading us to the tree of life. Mm -hmm. sharper, sharper than any two yeah. And I, I can't reiterate too much that we're, that we're longing to get back to the tree of life. And God, in one way, is using the temple... And all of this to figure in to show us the separation that has occurred, the way back, and it's a physical picture of something greater, something spiritual 
indeed. Okay, verse uh, 20, verse 29. 1 Kings 6, verse 29. He carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers within and without, and the floor of the house he overlaid with gold within and without. For the entrance of the oracle or the most holy, he made doors of olive wood, the lintel and the doorposts were a fifth part of the wall. So he made the two doors of olive wood and the carvings upon them of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, overlaid them with gold, and he spread the gold upon the cherubim. Notice that once again, verse 32. Get the idea. We have these intricate carvings on the wood. Verse 32 says, the last part, he spread the gold, overlaid this gold upon these carvings. So when they're dry and cured, you see the carvings there as well. He spread the gold upon the cherubim, upon the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance of the temple doorposts of olive wood out of a fourth part of the wall and two doors of fir wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. <clears throat> he carved thereupon cherubim, palm trees, open flowers. He laid, overlaid them with gold fitted upon the graven work and he built the inner court with three courses of hewn stone, a course of cedar beams. Again, I will repeat what I said earlier, verse 29 through 36. We can read some of this and we get pretty sleepy. It's very tedious reading, isn't it? And, it, but as I said earlier, I firmly believe that it's something we need to read, we need to understand. And what is it that we can understand by, under, by uh, all the details of even the building of the tabernacle and the building of this building, the temple? Why did God leave us such detailed descriptions of this? What are we to learn from that? His word. We need to follow his word. I think that's one of the big things that comes out of it. Anything else? Yes. God. And you look at the majesty and the splendor of this temple where the Jews went to worship God. I don't know. There seems to be a connection to me that our bodies are majestic in being created by God, used to worship Him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know I, if I said that the I way agree. my mind is going. I, I agree, but. And, and it is. First uh, Corinthians six: Our body is the temple. We've just finished a large, exhaustive description. Also, in Romans chapter one, verse through eleven. An exhaustive description, detailed description of what? The gospel. Very detailed, very exhaustive. And God meant for us to understand it, didn't he? Why? It has a lot of very detailed things that we can understand. 
And we could go on and on. And, and I also think about uh, a passage of Scripture such as 1 Timothy chapter 5, where the New Testament church is told something very detailed about something that might seem insignificant to you and I. That's a detailed description of who can be considered a widow indeed. Can it be just anybody, somebody that has a need that's a widow? You know, you have to be a certain age. You have to have helped people and, and given and been a, a help to people and without going back and reading it. There's so many criteria that have to be met for a widow to be considered a widow indeed in 1 Timothy 5. Well, why did God, why was God so restrictive and so detailed? Well, we have things you see even now that are quite exhaustive and quite detailed. And why did God give that, all that description to us? So we have things in the New Testament as well. Consider the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1. Go through and read the genealogies. Why did God leave that for us? It's a very exhaustive list. Why did he give that to us? To just toss it out, cut it out, never to read it? No, we're to go back and read it. And what do we understand about, for instance, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus? What do we understand by drawing, uh, connecting all those dots? That God was fulfilling his plan no matter how, what twists and turns that it might take throughout the ages. He was still working his plan out to bring Christ to the, to the world. So there's things like this that are very exhaustive that I think are very needful. Now let's continue as we look at the last paragraph in verse 37. And the fourth year was the foundation of the house the Lord laid in the month Ziv. And in the eleventh year in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, which was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof and according to all the fashion of it, so he was seven years in building it. And actually, if you would, uh, we might say, we might tend to say it was seven and a half years, we would, in our language, but usually the, the Bible will round up or down one way or the other. Here it's mentioned as seven years, seven years in building the temple. And uh, as the temple is finished, so think about what we've stated also, again, about the, the building plans that Solomon used. Is he going by his own whims? Did he sketch out, have an architect sketch out something that he would like to see and, and how he would like to see it done? Is Solomon doing that? No. Turn, if you will, to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. We looked this, at this the very first week of our study. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 11 through 12, answers the question, why do we have this description that we do? Why is it described this way? Why is it put together this way? And we find there in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 11 through 12, these building plans came from where? God. By the Spirit, he revealed to David what, how he wanted it built. And David, in turn, gave those instructions and those building plans to his son Solomon. 
So it's built the way God wanted it to be built. Not up to man. Not up to Solomon to decide. You know, Solomon was the wisest man upon the earth, wasn't he? And even at that, he was still not allowed to use his wisdom and his resources to come up with the way he wanted the building to be built. He had to build it the way God wanted him to build it. Now, what lesson do we learn there? What lesson do we learn there? And we, in the New Testament church, build, we don't build in that sense, we don't build the church, but we do it in God's prescribed way, don't we? They did it in the Old Testament, we still do it today. All right, we'll continue with chapter 7 next week, and we'll continue with temple building some more, and I appreciate the class.